1 Corinthians 10 is where we're at, and I, I mean 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, and I want to read our text this morning and then jump into it. We get to the body of the, of the letter now and into the concerns that Paul uh, has been receiving and will now address. He writes, and this is God's word, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Lord, I pray that you would lead us as a church that is currently today, 2,000 years later, tempted in very similar ways because of the sin that remains in our hearts, and yet, Lord, we love your desire to purify us through your word. So teach us and change us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We do jump into the main body, as you can tell. He's now addressing the first concern, and he will continue to address concerns throughout this book. But the main thing to see is how much he loves this church. Correction comes from his love for them. And when we think about the issues that are going to come up, I proposed on our first week that that with the problems that we're gonna, we're gonna see, that there's actually an underlying problem to all of those problems. Namely, that the church had lost Jesus or had displaced Jesus as the functional center of their church and of their lives, which could have been catastrophic. And I wanna, I wanna illustrate the, the catastrophe that can happen um, when, you, when you displace the center or replace the center. And, and I go back to January of 2020 when I got a, a group text from Mike Boucher to a, a group of buddies and he said, hey, did you guys hear that Kobe Bryant died in a helicopter crash today? And of course, at that point, I was driving somewhere. I hadn't heard that news. And two things happened, I remember, uh, while I was on the road. The first thing, I was, I was as shocked and surprised as anyone when you first heard that news. But the second thing that came to my mind was, was how much I wanted to know what happened. Like, what in the world happened? And it was, it was so interesting because it was only five days later after the accident, I had a coffee already set up with Matt Delahunty, who was a Coast Guard pilot, helicopter pilot, and he is recently uh, moved up to work at the Pentagon and Matt and Elizabeth and their kids are still missed around here. But it was at that coffee that Matt was able to describe exactly what happened. He knew exactly what happened five days after this fatal crash and, and months before the, the official investigation and report would come out. And he, he said that there's this phenomenon in flying called spatial disorientation or spatial D, 
He said, that's, that's exactly what happened. And he wrote it out for me. I, I asked him, hey, explain that to me. And, and Matt's a smart guy. Hang in there with this, okay? Put your thinking caps on. But he says, our spatial orientation is our ability to maintain body orientation and posture in relation to the surrounding environments, both at rest and during motion. Our brains make sense of what's up and down and how our bodies are moving through space through the brain's integration of multiple sensory cues. What we see, our visual cues, are usually the most important, but other biological cues are important as well. But generally speaking, humans are designed to maintain spatial orientation on the ground with gravity being the constant. However, the three-dimensional environment of flight is unfamiliar to the human body, creating sensory conflicts and illusions that make spatial orientation difficult and sometimes impossible to achieve. Any differences or discrepancies between visual inputs and other inputs can result in sensory mismatch, and that can produce illusions that lead to spatial disorientation or spatial D. There are a number of different types of spatial D, but one of the most common and deadly is the unexpected loss of visual cues, usually from inadvertent flight into clouds or fog. When flying visually, the horizon is the primary visual reference for climbing, descending, and turning. But when a pilot relies on visual cues and they unexpectedly are lost and they lose the horizon, especially if this happens during a climb or a descend, the brain loses the ability to orient its physical cues. Suddenly, steep turns and or a rapid descent feels normal to the pilot in his body. This illusion is so strong that pilots have at times convinced themselves that their instruments are malfunctioning. Even though the helicopter is rapidly descending toward the ground, their body feels like it's ascending. And so they descend even faster and harder. The pilot feels something different than what the instruments display, and this, unfortunately, is what killed Kobe Bryant. As the pilot indeed crashed right into the ground at a very high speed. You see, in the midst of, of complete confusion and disorientation, there was something that was meant to occupy the center of that pilot's focus, something that should have maintained the center and priority no matter what he felt and was tempted to trust. And that, were, that was the instruments. He replaced the instruments for what he felt and a tragic crash ensued. You see, I, I believe in 1 Corinthians that the gospel and Jesus Christ, those are the instruments. And whenever you lose sight of that and begin to, to trust your own instincts and even what you feel, when you displace the instruments, then tragic crashes can occur beginning with divisions in the church. The text today is pretty straightforward. Paul brings a pretty significant correction to them, but it's kind of three-pronged as I looked at it. First, he comes at them with urgency. This is the first thing that I see in our text. 
Paul comes at them with urgency. We see this in the very first verse in, in verse 10. Look at it again. He says, I appeal to you. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. Paul could not use stronger language here. I appeal to you. I beg you. I urge you. These words come from the gut. These are appeals mixed with deep emotion. But more than that, he is urging them by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's where we see urgency turned up to 11. At the very, this is also the very first sign that they've lost Christ at the center. Because to appeal to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I appeal to you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to appeal to the reality of all that Jesus Christ is in his nature, his character, his power, and his authority. If you think about who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ is like, what Paul is about to address, namely divisions among them, bears no resemblance to Jesus Christ. It bears no resemblance to who he is and what he has come to do. There is indeed an urgency here. This is very serious. But second, Paul comes at them with deep affection. You see, Paul isn't angry or annoyed. Paul loves this church and he addresses them with deep affection. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, and then he says this in verse 11, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, she was probably a, a businesswoman who had employees or servants that could travel back and forth to Ephesus where Paul was. But it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. You see, Paul addresses them as family members. He doesn't distance himself from them. Do you see that? These are his people. This is his family. They are brothers and sisters and will always be. He, he corrects them because he loves him, them. And this is how correction should always be, right? It should always spring from true concern and love. So the urgency does not erase the affection, but both cause this third thing, which I think is significant alarm. Serious, significant Alarm, And the alarm goes off because of the presence of division. Look at one, one more time. Verse 10 through 13, I appeal to you, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So we see here that the basis of the division is a preoccupation with and an attachment to gifted leaders. He explains the division. 
I follow Paul, some say. I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or maybe the most sanctimonious group. We follow Christ. We follow Jesus, right? And there's a couple of things to remember uh, about this. Remember when when we considered the culture in Corinth, you have to remember that that Corinth was rebuilt by Julius Caesar. It was a a powerful Roman city in Greece. So Corinth was this melting pot city where the power and impressiveness of the Romans met with the ancient virtue of philosophy and wisdom, which would then be communicated by famous and traveling orators. Maybe if you think about, in our day, TED Talks and how popular they became, and how how much you could gather a following by being a very gifted 18 to 20 minute speaker on whatever topic. So people like Brene Brown or Simon Sinek or Jordan Peterson or others, they gain not only fame but, but also a following. In Corinth it was that but on steroids, the people were trained to latch onto a philosopher or a rhetorician and not just become a fan, but actually become a follower. These speakers developed schools. And inside these schools were their disciples and even their patrons. This was how they would make their money. It was, it was old school. There was no like fantasy football scheme back in those days, right? Where you could, you could like pick a roster of highlight speakers. There was none of that. You chose one, and you stuck with that one, and you claimed that one's superiority for the rest of your life. This is what things were like. The, the problem was that the Christians in Corinth had applied the same worldly values and practices to the leaders who preached the gospel to them. Paul heard the alarming news that they were dividing into camps just like the pagans do. You're doing exactly what you were trained during your life in the world to do by creating camps and and tribes and declaring superiority over one another. This was alarming to Paul. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. That's actually leads to the second thing that we should know. There's a range of views about what exactly is going on with these allegiances. Some say that each of these leaders had a unique, distinctive that made them worthy of superiority. So, for example, Paul would have been super attractive, especially to the Gentiles, because of the grace that he preached as distinct from the law. Plus, Paul was, after all, the their first pastor, he was the one that planted the church, even though he admittedly came in weakness and not in impressive speech. His oratorical skills or lack thereof could be forgiven because he was Paul. He was OG. He's the Apostle Paul. We're with Paul. But Apollos, on the other hand, came after Paul, we find out in Acts. And we find out there also that Apollos was very gifted oratorically. He was brilliant and articulate and impressive as a speaker. He was maybe the world's first celebrity pastor. And you know what I'm 
talking about those preachers that by God's grace have been used in incredible ways in our lifetime. For me and Alex, we, we have pastored alongside pastors like John Piper, whose tapes at one point and then CDs at another point and then MP3s at another point and then links have gone around the world. C.J. Mahaney, Mark Driscoll at a time, Tim Keller, of course, right? We've pastored in the, the Tim Keller age, Sinclair Ferguson, Alistair Begg, John MacArthur, Don Carson, to name a few, and a whole host of younger and supremely gifted preachers, DeYoung, Chan, Chandler, Furtick, Greer, and more. But these have all taken up, maybe, maybe unintentionally. They're just serving God with their lives and gifts, and God favors them. But they become the, the modern version of Apollos because you, you pick your favorite gifted preacher and follow them. Look, people dig great speakers, right? And I'm the same. But then the ones who said that they follow Cephas or Peter might have chosen him because he was an actual disciple of Jesus. He was one of Jesus' best friends. Plus, maybe the Jewish Christians resonated more with his conservative teaching as the apostle to the Jews. Now, whether Peter had been there or not and preached or not, some said Peter is the best. We're with him. And, of course, everyone probably rolled their eyes at the super spiritual We Follow Jesus group who probably threw that trump card on every, on top of every conversation they ever had, Right? I think we can all relate to the favorite preacher phenomenon, and it, it happens locally too, doesn't it? Who is your favorite pastor or your favorite worship leader or your favorite community group leader here? You see that, that tendency to elevate, especially with these celebrity pastors, to elevate the, their influence and to magnify their content and to argue their merits against others when they're not even your pastor nor do you even know them, nor do I know them, nor have we even ever met them. Look, this, this will always be Luther ends, Lutherans, Wesleyans, Calvinists, right? This has always been a thing and goes all the way back to the early church. But I think there's more going on here than just kind of this popularity contest. It seems to me that the divisions were connected to, to who baptized each believer. Did you notice that that's the direction that Paul went? Look again at verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else for Christ did not send me to baptize. What's with the baptized stuff, Paul, right? I mean, it's five times the word baptize is used here. It takes kind of this strange turn. So that maybe it was deeper than just their, their speaking, but actually the efficacy of their baptism by whoever performed their baptism. But either way, the preoccupation with leaders was the basis. But what was the nature of the division? 
Well, clearly the, the division was the result of replacing then the content of the gospel with the delivery of the gospel, if indeed it had to do with their oratorical skill. The division was a result of replacing the message of the gospel with the method of communicating the gospel. And at the core, the division came through trading the person and power of Christ proclaimed in the gospel for the importance or impressiveness of the person who ministered the gospel and then arrogantly and idolatrously creating a layer of human superiority as a result. You get that? And to sharpen the point, let's, let's consider what division actually is. Because Paul is confronting division, but what exactly is division? What counts as division? Because we know that he's not talking about the reality of preferences we all have. We do. We all have preferences. We all resonate with certain speakers and their style and, and how they go about it. And that's an okay thing. He's going to address preferences soon with regard to Christian liberty. We also know that he's not talking about the disagreements that occur between believers. Where Paul goes one way and Barnabas goes another way. We have disagreements about how we interpret things in Scripture and how we practice the things that we see in Scripture. And, and we know that God knows that about us. We also know that he's not talking about a wise decision to create space or to create boundaries as the result of or as a consequence of sin. Look, separation and space at times are biblical and wise. We're to warn the divisive person twice and then have nothing to do with them. At the end of church discipline, we are to turn the person over to Satan. That is legitimate and biblical and, and wise space that is created between believers at times. Hopefully with restoration and redemption in mind as the goal because of Christ. But we don't think that Paul is talking about that. Division here by definition is the destruction of something. Division is the wicked dissolving of unity, which Christ actually hates. Division is the attitude that takes preferences and perspectives and elevates them to categories of superiority. Divisions destroy humble and deferential love. Divisions destroy fellowship. Because of the intensity of the disagreement that develops. And division breeds more and more arrogance and hard-heartedness. Because of the instinct to defend your position. And the instinct to expose the failure of the other position. And the instinct to rally around those who agree with you. Look, we all try to defend or prove or feel good about our own conclusions, and we flock to others who agree. And when you think about this destructive division, it is reprehensible 
and utterly incompatible with the power of the gospel and the result of the gospel of Jesus Christ who came and died to make all of the people of God one through his cross. And division is utterly unthinkable when the heart cry of Jesus in his prayer to his father was, Father, make them one, as we are one. And it was for that very thing that Christ died on a cross. And yet, like spatial disorientation, with division, you forget about Jesus. You take your eyes off of Christ and begin to fly by feel. What feels so normal and natural is to be right about what you think. And to oppose who you think is wrong. And to be attracted to others like you who create a sense of superiority based on your position. That's what feels so normal and natural to us. And yet what you don't know is you are flying at high speed that relationship into the ground. You might be flying that community group into the ground, that ministry team into the ground, that church into the ground. Because you've lost sight of Christ Look, it's always just one click over, isn't it? You take the the true north. The dial is set on true north. The glory and power of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And you just click it one over to who and how that gospel was proclaimed, proclaimed to you. And that then becomes more important. You take the true north of the gift and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ available to us all, and you just click it one over to how that spirit should be administered and who is superior, depending on what your answer to that question is. You take the the true north of the absolute gift of songs that serve us in magnifying Christ and exalting Christ and experiencing Christ's presence, and you just one click over to how those songs are played or sung. You take the the gift of the sovereign Christ working through governments for our good, And you take it one click over and the church, the evangelical church, becomes an embarrassment because of our political allegiances that have become more important than the Christ in all of us. You see? It's just one click over and the list goes on and on and on till you get to the the proverbial color of the carpet. What hasn't divided churches and people is Christ divided is what Paul says is Christ divided was Paul crucified for you were you baptized into the name of Paul these are arresting questions brothers and sisters 
Is Christ divided? Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, is Christ divided? Of course not. Of course not. And it's right there that you and I need to see the real problem. The real problem here is the gospel and Jesus Christ is no longer central, according to Paul. Can you see that? Divisions are first a gospel problem, not a behavior problem. The behavior of instigating or allowing destructive division, it's a symptom. It's a symptom of a displaced or replaced gospel division comes because you've replaced Jesus, because Jesus is not divided. And no, no gifted and impressive preacher of the gospel died for you. Only Jesus did. And you were baptized into him along with everyone else who calls upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, this is the framework that Paul has already laid out, especially in the verse just before our text. You remember this from last week? This is verse 9, where Paul concludes this, this explosive, affectionate thanksgiving for them because of the evidences of grace that he saw in them. He says that God will, will sustain you to the end, and he says, God is faithful. And then look, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Look, that verse is dripping with covenantal language. The faithfulness of God in the Old Testament is all connected to his promise to create and to save a people, a nation that he would call his own. And what Paul had come to learn from Jesus himself is that Christ came to accomplish the inclusion of all nations into the people of God through his death on the cross. The covenantal blessing to every nation, the inclusion of the world, Jews and Gentiles, males and females, rich and poor, young and old, slave or free. This covenant relationship and partnership and fellowship with God's own son, forever united to Christ, would come through the door of the cross of Jesus Christ. Where he died, the cross which was a shameful weakness to the Romans, the cross, which was foolishness to the Greeks. The cross was an embarrassment and a scandal to Jews, but the cross was the very power of God to unite the world of believers into Christ as one. And this good news of inclusion into the covenant people of God would not be found out by the powerful or the wise or the eloquent or through worldly wisdom, but it would be found in a crucified Savior on a cross to be received by faith as a gift, not through works of the law, but a gift of the grace of God to any who would come to him. See, this is, this is what they had forgotten. And Paul came to preach this good news. The grace of God that saves anyone who believes and unites all who believe to Christ. From the greatest to the least, for thousands of years, 
All who come to faith in Christ are united to him and then declared to be part of his body, which is one. And you are saved not because of what you have done or do and not because of what group you belong to and not because you are superior to others and not because of whoever preached to you was was eloquent or impressive, but all because of what Christ has done and how pleased God was to call you by name and include you into Christ who is not divided and into his body which is one. Paul did not come to baptize but to preach This life-changing and world-changing message that you can be united to Christ through faith because of what he did on the cross. So, here's his command. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in light of who Christ is, in light of this gospel, in light of what was preached to you. You can already hear what's coming, don't you? That was foolishness to the world, but the very wisdom of God. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Who were you that Christ would come to you? Not many impressive, not many wise, Not many rich. Christ was pleased to unite believers into himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue, going all the way back to Abraham and beyond. One in Christ. So I appeal to you. I appeal to you. I beg you. I urge you. Redeemer Church. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. Look, if you are sinfully and unbiblically and destructively propagating division with other believers, where you have found yourself in a position of some kind of superiority over them, you have forgotten Jesus. And you must be restored to unity, the kind of unity that Jesus came and died for and purchased with his own blood. Be united is a command, and it's a command that takes work. Be united means that a restoration needs to happen. A restoration through repentance that needs to happen where there is division. Be united. A restoration that returns to Christ at the center that produces a kind of humility amongst ourselves. And reorientation of our hearts. That as believers, we never have the option to view yourself or others without Christ filling your gaze. You don't have the option. Because we've been united to Christ. We are both one with Christ. 
When you see yourself or any other believer, you must see Jesus first. And who you are together in Christ first. Now, certainly there's going to be preferences. Certainly we're going to have disagreements. Certainly we see things different ways. Sure, we believe what we believe and stand on what we stand on and worship with like-minded believers because of our convictions. Humbly knowing that the who was right and who was wrong day in heaven is still to come, right? But is your attitude toward other believers divisive? Are you spraying, disintegrating, dissolving, destroying elements into the very body of Christ? If so, this should alarm you and me. And if so, we should repent of our pride and be reconciled to one another, subordinating secondary preferences in order to fight for the unity that Jesus won on the cross. In other words, Fly by the instruments again. Viewing one another the way that Christ sees us. Look, this is all Paul wants to do. He was at the front end of what would become so many heartbreaking divisions for sure in the biggest possible ways with entire denominations, not just fighting against each other, but literally killing each other back in the day. Could you imagine the heartbreak in the heart of Christ that those who, who you, you died for to make one thought that killing people who didn't agree with them would be a good idea? other believers. And of course, that spirit of division continues all the way to our day. And again, it's, it's because of the curse, it's because of sin that has entered into our perspective. And though we've been set free from sin, it still remains in our hearts and our, our natural fleshly instinct is to divide. And yet all Paul wants to do is just, brothers and sisters, like how is any of that compatible when you just view Jesus Christ on the cross? Which is what I preached. Not in, in human wisdom and eloquence. Lest that be emptied of its power. And its power to What? to not only save, but to unify. Because if you are united to Christ and I am united to Christ, we can be as different as different can be. All around the world, every nation, tribe, and tongue. And yet we are one because of him. So do we live this way? Is this the priority? Even when you fly into the clouds, 
of relationships with one another and are tempted to sow destructive division. Look, the call is is to be united, to repent. And remember, at the the same cross that, that unites us, it's at that same cross that we find forgiveness for all of our pride, for all of our superiority, for all of our one click away. You don't see the the believer as forever united with Christ and someone that you'll share eternity with. That's not how you see them. You go one click away and you just see their immaturity. You see their political preferences. You see their choices. You see, for for God's sake, who they're reading right now. (gasps) And again, all these things might matter at some level. But when we view Christ and we view each other through Christ, then we'll experience that, brothers and sisters, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It commands a blessing from God, doesn't it? And that's what we long for. Worship team, join me and let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the encouragement of what to do. Lord, each one of us in our lives and in our history and our years have sadly experienced either our own participation in divisions or the sad dissolving and utter pain and ripping apart that's the result of divisions between believers Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the solution. Help us to leave here knowing what to do in terms of Jesus placing you at the center of how we see ourselves, how we see one another, how we see our church, how we see ministries. Lord, to to subordinate preferences that don't rise to that. likes and and dislikes those all live in our hearts and that won't go away until we see you complaining about this and that and sometimes having a point Lord help us not to, to elevate those Lord would you unite us as a church There's power in unity. There's cancer in division and death. So help us to, to, to learn how to, by your spirit, see Christ first in one another, in our church, to pray that Christ will be first. But I pray that you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen.